Good morning. morning. Welcome to Gracious Cross Reformed Church. Now what we're going to do today, this is a little bit of a different approach to the ministry of God's Word. The title of today's message is Each One's Praise Will Come From God. And our key text is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. Now you may notice that we seem to have jumped over two chapters, or even three. Uh, and uh, we have not. They are going to all be addressed, many of them in this passage, this message today. But the key word for those who would like to keep track and make a little tally mark every time you hear the key word, the word is judgment. So when you hear the word judgment, make a little mark. And if you'd like to come up after the service and tell me how many times I said the word judgment, then I would appreciate that. I will not know for sure how many times I said it because I'm not keeping track up here, okay? But you keep track and then tell me what happens. So let's stand for the reading of God's word together in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to read through verses 1 through 5. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds to see the wonderful things that are here in your word. And Lord, help us connect the dots and to see the, the themes and the, the golden threads that run through your word so that we can see how all of these things work together, tie together into one beautiful truth. A truth that allows us to be set free from judging one another and creating a party spirit, a personality cult, a, a sinful division within your church. Lord, may we be uh, inoculated spiritually from this horrible disease of divisiveness. And we ask it in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior who is the one and only judge, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now before I dive into the passages of Scripture, I would like to do something, and this is where I want all the kids to be looking up at the screen right now, okay? Look up at the screen and tell me, what do you see? What is that? Can anybody tell me? What do you think it is? 
You can shout out some guesses if you like. What is that? Nobody knows. Yeah. You, you can you can take. Okay, that's a good guess. What do you think? What? It's a flying saucer. Okay, it's a damn flying saucer. Okay, what else? Okay, well maybe it will help if we kind of pull back a little bit and see it. It's a boat, yes, it's more than a boat. It's an oil tanker. It's one of the biggest boats in the world, okay? Now there's a reason for me showing you this picture and it kind of tells you a little bit of what we're trying to do here in this passage today, in this message. Sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, we, we fall into the trap of reading a passage out of context. Okay, so here's a little saying I want you to write down. It's not new to me. I didn't come up with this, but it is an important one. And that is a text without a context is nothing but a pretext for forcing something on the word that's not there. Okay, whenever someone preaches from a passage without reference to the context, the, the setting of that passage, it just opens the doors wide for them to make that mean whatever they want it to mean and use it to deliver whatever they want to say. And it's not a faithful treatment of the word of God. But because we meet once a week and we take passages, one passage at a time, it's important for us always to stop and consider the context for this passage. Because in this particular series, we've been going through with 1 Corinthians. Paul is making an argument against divisiveness and division within the local church. But he comes at it uh, like a man with a, uh, well, with a machine gun. He's <laughs> like spraying bullets in every direction. And every individual bullet is making a point. But if you just looked at one passage out of context, you could come away with all kinds of ideas, not realizing that he's still talking about division, okay? He's still going after divisiveness within the local church. And so today, I'm gonna to try to overcome that hazard by giving you the big picture, okay, of what he's saying, and then focusing in on the individual arguments that he makes in the process of providing us with the big picture. Does that make sense? So, Paul is continuing to address the problem of disunity in the church. And so we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, and not with solid food. Now the word in the Greek there would be meat, okay? I fed you with milk and not with meat. You know, the difference between milk and meat is not that they're harder to understand, it's just they're harder to swallow, okay? They're harder to chew up and swallow. There's a lot of truth 
that we're not really having a problem understanding it. We're just having trouble swallowing it because it's, it's immense in its implications. It forces us to embrace uh, something that we really are afraid of. And so he says, I fed you with milk because the meat would have been overwhelming to you young Christians. He says, I didn't give you the meat yet. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you the meat, but I'm holding off until you can get strong in just the milk of the truth of God's word. So, he says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, with meat, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are not still able, for you are still carnal. And he uses the word carnal here to reference the natural man, the man who still thinks like the world, the man or woman who still gets their assumptions, their givens, their, uh, their, their basic worldview is still coming from the world and what the world considers to be wisdom. And Paul is saying, you've got to let go of all of that in order to stop being the natural person who thinks in terms of this world's foolishness and begins to think instead in terms of the wisdom of God, okay? So, so for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal? and behaving like mere men. Do you see what I'm saying here? These people are still thinking like the world. They are carnal. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am Apollos, are you not carnal? So even though these new believers have been born again, they have not yet grown up to spiritual maturity to the point that they're able to let go of their divisiveness, their carnal thinking about Paul, Apollos and Paul and Cephas and so on. Now there's no reason to pit the members of the same team against one another, okay? We're fighting the opposing team, okay? We're not fighting one another, okay? And so it would be like in a football game if the the quarterback suddenly started arguing about what the play was that we were running. You know, there has to be an agreement on what we're doing. Who's going to get the ball? Who's going to pass it? Who's going to catch it? And so on. And if we don't have that agreement on the team, we cannot win the game. And so Paul is wanting us to stop arguing with one another on the same team. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants, that would be Paul, is anything, nor he who waters, that would be Apollos, is anything, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants, and he who waters are one. That means we're united. We're not arguing with one another. We're not trying to one-up one another. We're not trying to uh, you know, step in front of one another and get more credit than another because none of us amounts to anything unless God gives the increase. Okay, so this, you see the argument that Paul's making here. He's going after divisiveness. 
Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So this is this phrase here, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, is setting us up for the passage that's coming, that is our key text here today. Everyone will receive praise from God. Now that's a odd way of putting it. God is going to praise us. That's what Paul says. And so he sets it up here when he says, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now in John chapter 15 in verse 5, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. And I would imagine he was standing either in or next to an or, a, a grape uh, vineyard you know, when he's saying this. So everybody's looking around, seeing all these vines, seeing all these branches, and they see the fruit that's hanging from these branches. And Jesus says, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If you get detached from the vine, then there will be no fruit. Because apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. So who receives the glory? God gives the increase, not us. We're in relationship to God. His gifts flow to us and through us to others. And things happen because of that. And history is changed because of that. But ultimately, it is God who causes the increase. And we simply participate in what he's doing. So only God can cause the ministry of his servants to prosper. Now, it is gratifying to me, and I'm sure to the other men here, to see our little congregation is growing. Growing numerically. Now, we have no idea who's going to be here next week. Okay, It's always just from one week to the next. But it is gratifying to see us when you, you know, there's not some family out sick and somebody else is over here and somebody's on vacation and somebody's on a crazy cruise and, you know, and all these things are going on. But it's nice when we all are showing up on the same Sunday and go, hey, look, we're growing numerically. And it would be wonderful to know that we are growing spiritually, that we're becoming less and less carnal, less and less like the natural person who thinks in terms of this world's wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom. And so it's God who causes the increase. It's he who, who allows a ministry to prosper. Now, Paul and the other apostles have laid a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And that is the only foundation for the church. And so Paul turns, and remember, this is all a stream all in the same long passage, going after division, going after divisiveness. So Paul in this passage, which is a, a famous passage, people love to preach this passage, but they sometimes don't acknowledge that this passage is a part of a bigger argument against divisiveness, okay? So that's where we're back in a way to look at the ship and not just look at the pipes and the, and the things on the little part of it. It says, for we are God's fellow workers, and you 
are God's field. Now he switches metaphors right here. He goes, you are God's building, okay? According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Now, the difference between a builder and a master builder, and, and it comes out even in the Greek words that are used, uh, it is an architect who does the building himself. Okay? So he's not just a builder, and he's not just an architect. He's a building architect. It would be like he's not just a singer, and he's not just a songwriter. He's a singer-songwriter. And so Paul is saying, as a, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. Now he's still referring to himself in Apollos, right? Uh, he has laid a foundation, Apollos has built upon that foundation. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation that has been laid by the Apostle Paul uh, is Christ himself and the identity of who Christ is. And so have you not even read this scripture, Jesus says in Mark 12, 10, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone in a building was a stone that very carefully set so that it's perfectly level. And because it's on the corner of the building, it sets the line in all directions, not just sideways, but also up and down. That cornerstone is setting the lines for, for building the foundation out this way, building it out that way, and building the building up straight on top of that cornerstone. Very important part of the building. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. Now, he's also the entire foundation. But this idea of the cornerstone was an important prophecy in the Old Testament. Jesus alone is the chief cornerstone and the foundation of true Christianity. Is anyone else trying to tell you thing, anything other than that is a heretic? So Jesus is the foundation of the church. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, we have a wonderful passage. I'm going to throw a lot of these extended passages at you with little or no commentary. I will try to read it dramatically enough to where the meaning comes through without me having to uh, stop and explain anything. If something needs explanation, I'll stop. But let's just read what it says. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And Peter in the Greek is a little stone. You're a little stone. And on this rock, 
I will build my church. Now the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant view of this passage is the Catholics would say that Peter himself is the rock, which shifts the foundation away from Jesus. But the Protestant reads the same passage as it says, no, Peter is not the rock, Peter's a little stone. And the rock is this revelation from the Father as to who Jesus is. That's the rock. And Jesus says, the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it, against this rock of who Jesus truly is. And you can see the gates of hell. Now, last time I noticed, gates don't chase anybody around, okay? Gates just kind of stand there, stable. So what's the concern about the gates of hell prevailing against it? Well, if you look into the Old Testament, you find that the gates of any city are in effect the city hall of that town. The elders are all seated in the gates of the city. This is where judgments are made and criminals are prosecuted and this is where public policy is made. And so when you see that someone is sitting in the gates, it's because they've achieved some sense of uh, prominence in the community that they would have a place to sit. It's not, it's not homeless people camping out at the gates, let's put it that way. We're dealing with the city hall of the village and the gates of the city are the place where counsel and policy is made. And so when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, he's saying the council of hell will not prevail against the church. That's important. We're not running away from gates. And we're not storming the gates of hell either. There's nothing in there we want, okay? What we're dealing with is our ability to thwart the counsel of Satan and all of his minions, his demons, and all of the foolish, useful idiots that he has recruited in this world to pursue his agenda. When we read that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one, we're dealing with the success of the gates of hell, the council of hell uh, prevailing in human culture. And so, Jesus is telling us here that that council of hell will not prevail against the church. And he says, and I will give you, Peter, and the other apostles as well, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so we see the the uh, function of the apostolic authority as they wrote the scriptures and as they responded to issues that happened in the church, part of which Paul is doing in this passage. He is using his authority as an apostle to address the problems that occur in the church. And this was something that is only for the apostolic age. There is no new apostle showing up adding to the scriptures, okay? We have these men given the keys of the kingdom of heaven and they have done their work well and we have the Bible. And most of the best preaching, I would say, you'll ever hear is simply reminding people of what the apostles said. It's not coming up with new stuff, okay? It's just reminding the people 
of the church of what the apostles have already said. And the identity of Jesus Christ is the foundation that Peter and Paul both laid in that apostolic period. The faith that is once and for all time given to the saints. So, there was never any doubt about this. We don't see any hesitation in the New Testament about this issue of Jesus being the foundation. I love this passage in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. It illustrates it from another perspective. Here's Peter doing what, Paul, what uh, Jesus said. You know, you are Peter, but this rock is going to be the foundation upon which we build the church. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to help to a helpless man by what means he has been made well let it be known to you all and to all the people of israel that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom you crucified whom god raised from the dead by this man stands by him, this man, stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter understood that he was not the rock that he was the little stone and that God had revealed to him, the Father had revealed to him who Jesus is. And that is the rock. That is the cornerstone. That is the foundation upon which the church is built. So Peter and the other apostles are all willing to die for this truth, and they did. They did die for this truth, that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we, today, and I don't just mean we as elders and teachers, all of us as believers in Christ, we are all building on this foundation, which is Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, back to our passage here. Chapter 3 and verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, that is, endures the fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, there have been a lot of different interpretations of what Paul's talking about here. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 15 and verse 20 to make the point that Paul prefers 
to constantly move into new territory where Christ has not yet been named because he wants to do the foundational work in that new area. He says, I, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. He prefers to go into new territory and to proclaim the gospel and to present Christ as the foundation. That, that is his uh, ongoing uh, aspiration. Well, what does it mean here that we are to build with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, and that each one's work will be revealed by fire? Well, how we build and what we build with will determine our reward. Whatever else we get out of this, I think that is clear that you've been given an opportunity to build upon the foundation, which is Christ. And so it may not be wise to build with flammable materials. Okay? Now, in the building field, you know, when you have something that's built, uh, say, with gold, that's usually a gold plating. You know, like in the temple, you have wood, and then underneath the uh, over, over the wood is gold or silver. When you have precious stone, the precious stone may be set like jewelry with beautiful stones, or it may be something that is uh, like, like marble, which would be a precious stone. And, and you could have marble veneers set over other stones or, or wood. <clears throat> and so the building trade would, would incorporate a lot of this into even the most expensive building would have some wood. Now, what about hay and straw? Well, the hay and the straw would be found in the thatching of roofs. It would be found as, as it was cut up into uh, short pieces and incorporated into mud to create bricks that were stronger because they had these threads of straw running through them. So we can't really say, if you're really smart, you're gonna build only with gold and silver and precious stone. And that, that is not probably practical in any real sense, if we're using the metaphor of, of building. So here's what I, would, what I would come away from, and this is my, my own understanding. We are intended to invest our lives in building on this foundation. You give to God the very best you have. He's not going to reject something that's wood and hay and straw or stubble, but that is to be built upon in such a way that you're giving God the best you have. Your time, your energy, your finances, you know, your reputation, whatever it is that's precious to you, use it to build upon the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And this is done in the context of evangelism, taking risks. You know, I refer to my businesses as business in mission enterprises. They are not just a way for me to make an income, they are ways for me to have access to people who I can speak to concerning Christ. You see what that means? If you're in business, let it be a business in mission enterprise.
where you are looking for opportunities to let your light shine in the lives of your customers and your, your co-workers and your clients and so on. That in other words, it's, this is not something set apart from your Christian life. It is something that is invested into your Christian life. Now, everything we do will be tested by fire. And the things that will be burned up are the things that evidently do not, that don't pass code, <laughs> okay, in God's, uh, you know, building metaphor here. And so, without making things too complicated, I want to point out that for most of us, our primary building project will be our own personal life, our own pursuit of holiness, our, our willingness to be a disciple of Christ and to listen and to learn from him and as remember what is Paul's point through all of this to stop being carnal to stop thinking in worldly terms and so he writes here in chapter 3 and verse 16 do you not know now this is Paul's mind shifting from one metaphor to another but he's not left behind the idea that the problem is division within the church. And so he turns the corner here and says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? No, the you here is not just the corporate you of the, of the congregation, it's the individual believer is a, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now we read that word destroy and we are tempted to throw in damnation and eternal re rejection. That's not necessarily there. Ananias and Sapphira defiled the temple and they died. But there's no reference to them having lost their salvation. You know, any, you know we, we have to be careful that we don't assume that when God punishes someone that it's an eternal damnation. No, the consequences of sin are real. In fact, Paul refers to in this very epistle that sometimes a person is turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that the spirit might be saved. You see, so, so we're not dealing with eternal damnation. If God, by his sovereign uh, grace and his wrath, decides to deal with somebody in serious discipline, even to the point of death. It says, if some of you are taking part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and some have actually died because of that. He's not saying they've gone to hell. He's saying that they have been judged in this life in order so that they might not be judged in eternity. So, again, we're dealing with a big sweep of Scripture, all dealing with the issue of division, and now Paul is saying your primary project is going to be you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and if anyone defiles the temple God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy which temple you are now in first or second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20 we have an interesting metaphor from the Apostle Paul again he says but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and clay some for honor and some for dishonor. Now I'm going to keep it kind of relatively 
clean here, okay? In a, in a large house, you're going to have some vessels that are used to serve food. And you're going to have other vessels that are used to wash dishes. We're just not going to go anywhere else, okay? Some vessels are used just to scrub pots and pans and do the dishes. And Paul is saying here, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, notice it doesn't say God cleanses him here. He says, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, in other words, clean up your act, and we might serve food with you as a vessel. You see, sometimes a vessel is only being used for dishonorable person's purposes because it's it take time to clean it up. And the same vessel cleaned up could be used as serving at the table. And Paul is using this as a metaphor in order to say, um, you are not stuck wherever you are in the household of God in some role that you, you know, it's a, it's a necessary part. Somebody's got to do those dishes. But you don't have to be the vessel for doing the dishes if you clean yourself up. You, you could be used for other purposes within the household of God, within the family room setting here. This is not heaven and hell issues. This is usefulness to God in ordinary ministry in his house. So building on Christ as our only foundation <clears throat> with good quality building materials, I would read into that the best we've got, giving God our best, and keeping things clean from dishonorable uses is our basic assignment. For most of us, this, this is the battle. It's personal holiness. It's personal discipleship. It's availing ourselves of the means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, fellowship, right? These are means of grace that God has provided to help us grow in our faith and to become stronger as Christians. And a big part of that maturing process is to stop thinking like the world. Okay? So this building project requires us to replace foolishness with God's wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Now Paul picks up on the same line of thought in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 where he writes, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me use an example. It's not a perfect example, but it, it I think would make sense to us. Imagine that you are living in a pre-scientific age. And, and you have no idea of, about germs. <laughs> okay? you, and, and, this, and somebody somehow, you know, 
somebody from the future goes back into the past and, they, and, and they're talking to a physician in, the, in that time, that pre-scientific era. And this guy is, uh, is working on somebody's cutting off a leg, you know, and throwing it in the basket. And, and, uh, and, it, and, and he goes and he wipes his hands with a towel. And then he goes and works on somebody else. And then he goes in and he helps a, <clears throat> a woman have a baby. And the guy from the future goes, um, excuse me, <laughs> you really ought to wash your hands. He says, oh, okay. And he goes over to a filthy basin and he starts putting his hands in this dirty water and then he wipes them on the same dirty towel and he goes over and starts up on another patient. And they're going, stop! He says, but you don't understand, I'm a trained physician. I know what I'm doing. I've spent years studying. And that, that man from the future says, you're going to have to forget everything you think you know. Because it doesn't work that way. Does, does that metaphor work for you? Because you've got to stop thinking you know anything. Because until you realize what germs are, you're going to kill more per people than you help. These people would be better off if they never came to you and just, you know, took, took their chance with just healing on their own. Maybe a little oil and wine in the wound, but stay away from that doctor because the most dangerous place in town is his hospital. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, you have come to Christ. You think you know how things work. You honor people because of the image that they have, their oratory, uh, their, their philosophical prowess, all of the things that this world recognizes and honors and says is so wonderful. And God says, that is utter foolishness. That is not what matters. That is not how it works. You need to be renewed in your mind. You need to stop being carnal and start being spiritual. And when you do become spiritual, you'll stop evaluating one another and elevating one over another and thinking of one group and another group as being better or worse because God is the judge, not you. Now he gets into the pretty deep here in a moment. But for now, I'll just take a look. Each of us individually as a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But together, we are also living stones that are being built together into a much larger structure. And this is where the issue of division becomes such a problem. Because you're not only an individual Christian, you're a member of the body. And you've got to function as a member of the body without judging one another. Even even uh, when, when we read the word judgment, we often jump to the idea of condemnation and criticism. But praise and honor is also judgment. Do you see what's going on here? It's not just that you've got a critical spirit and you're putting everybody down. The problem in, in, in Corinth is they were raising everybody up. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. 
And they don't realize they're carnal. They're like a doctor in the Middle Ages, and they have no idea how much harm they're doing with all of this worldly wisdom being honored and elevated within the church. And it's hurting the church, and Paul is taking almost four chapters to deal with it. And it's the first problem he deals with in a church that has a lot of problems. Okay? So, we are living stones in God's house. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, coming to him as a living stone, that's Jesus, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, and here we go again, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. You see how the word of God constantly echoes this same theme of Jesus is the foundation. He was rejected by the leaders of the of Israel, and he is the chief cornerstone of the body, of the building of God's temple, which is God's people. The personal holiness of each of us as an individual temple and as a living stone affects the holiness of the larger structure of Christ's church as we are built together as a part of his spiritual house. And so we want to beware of doing what we used to call in the Jesus movement, <laughs> bringing sin into the camp, okay? This was a phrase that just echoes in my mind. I can see myself in the Christian coffee house and hearing these phrases. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1, but the children of Israel committed a trespass against uh, regarding accursed things. Now it says the children of Israel did this, and then it says Achan. Achan as an individual man, took, it says, the accursed thing. So, <coughs> there we go. That didn't work very well. Um, the children of Israel were told to go uh, in and, and take this particular town. And when they did, they were to take all of the stuff that normally would be the, the loot, you know, the spoils of the battle, they were to take it all and they were to just burn it. It's to become an offering to the Lord. And so when we read the word accursed thing here, it's not saying that the thing is you know, being cursed. It's saying it's been decreed that it will be destroyed. Okay, It's going to be destroyed. But Achan took some of those. He took a wedge of gold and a really nice robe and he, and he takes it and he buries it under the rug in his tent. And so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel as a whole. And they go through this process of identifying who's the one. It's going to, they go through, okay, it's going to be this tribe. It's going to be this family within this tribe. It's going to be this particular household. And finally it comes down to Achan. And Moses says, okay, come on, fess up. What did you do? And Achan says, I, I took some gold and I took this robe and you'll find it under my 
my rug in my tent. And they go and find it. And then they end up, God renders judgment on Achan. But Achan is not treated like he's no longer a Jewish member of the community. He's not condemned to hell. He's, his household, everything he has is burned. It's horrible. It's a horrible judgment. But Achan was a part of the covenant of Israel. He sinned against the Lord, and he brought sin into the camp of Israel. Now, how did all of this come to light? The next time they went into uh, a battle, they went up against a town called Ai. And Ai was a small town. It'd be like Silverton or something like that. This is going after a small town. They say, well, we need we need two or 3,000 soldiers. We can mop this up in a day. So then they go in, and suddenly... <laughs> The Silvertonians reared up the, the, the people of Ai. You know, they got their act together and they chased the Israelites away. And, and uh, they come back to the camp. 36 soldiers died in that battle. And, there, and Joshua goes and cries out to God. And he says, God, what's going wrong? If the people in this surrounding area find out that they can beat us, you know, part of what we got going is they think we can't be defeated and we just got defeated. And God's response is, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. The reason they lost that battle at Ai is because there was sin in the camp. When they dealt with the sin that was in the camp, then they went forward and they had victory from that point on. City by city. Now we come to the New Testament and we have a similar situation where a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira uh, sold a possession and they kept back part of the proceeds and acted like they were giving the entire amount. And Peter, is, it's revealed to Peter and Peter says, why would you lie to the Holy Spirit? When you had the money, it was yours. You didn't have to give any of it. Why did you lie and try to portray yourself as giving the whole amount when you're actually giving a part of it. Now that's an important detail because otherwise we get this idea that, uh, that the, the early church was in some kind of communal organization where everybody had to give everything to the apostles. That's not true. While they owned what they owned, it was theirs. When they decided to make an offering, then that became part of the church's budget to use for taking care of the needs of the church. But it was not a commune. It was not coercive. It was all entirely uh, a radical generosity that those, especially the wealthy, were selling lands and, and houses that were probably second homes and investment property and selling it because of the need of the church in order to provide for the needs of the people there in Jerusalem who were being persecuted and ostracized. So what we see in these passages is sometimes our own neglect, disregard for personal holiness doesn't just affect us, it affects the whole structure of what God is building. We, we keep ourselves pure, not just for our own personal, you know, I'm a good boy, pat on the back, but because our sin undermines the spiritual power of the church that we are affiliated with. And, and that would, what that would mean is, this should motivate all of us to repent of any secret sin and ask God to forgive you and allow this little congregation to be spiritually powerful 
and not have our power sapped away by sin in the camp, you know, secret sins that are going on behind the scenes. That's not a condemnation move there. That's, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm saying if you are guilty, then don't just you know, overlook it and say, oh, God's grace is so wonderful. No, it is having a spiritual effect on you and on your family. If you want to be strong in your witness, then pursue holiness, okay? Pursue, you know, progressively walk away from sin. So again, the personal holiness of each of us as an individual temple, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as living stones that are being built together into a larger house, uh, we have an effect on the holiness of the larger congregation, the, ch the structure of Christ's church. We are being built together as a local church, and that is why divisiveness is so harmful. We've got to be, we've got to stick together in order to be built up as a structure for the Lord's use, okay? And so elevating one over another and in, in, in praising them or putting others down and criticizing them, that's something Paul wants to see stop. And so this is why division is so harmful. He turns now into verse 31, therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Now this is an important doctrine, it doesn't get enough attention uh, in the church, but he's saying here, don't build up individuals in the church in, in, in ways that create division, because whether it's Apollos or it's Paul, they're all yours. Okay. This idea of for all things are yours is important to Paul. He's, he refers to this in different places in his letters. It's all yours. You don't have to squabble with one another. It's all yours. Okay. You've you got all these different gifted men and, and people in the church. You don't have to pit them against one another. They are all yours. And they're all here to build you up. And they're all here to bless you. So don't, don't divide over Apollos and Paul and Cephas and so on. Because they're all yours. They're all on your team. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Or the world. This whole world. It's all yours. Now, you know, be careful. We're not going into the king's kids, you know, uh, errors. But, but I'll explain what it does mean. Or life. You're alive by God's good grace. Or death. You die for good reasons. Okay? He says, I don't want to die. Death is a gift from God when it's done in the right time and the right way for the right reason. Or things present, what you've got now. Or things to come, what you may or may not have in the future. It's all yours. Now, I hope you get a, get a glimpse of how glorious this is. You walk out and you look at the world, the good and the bad of it all, and you realize it's all working together for the good of those who love God. Even the nasty stuff, it's, it's all yours. It's nasty for a reason. <laughs> and God is sovereign over all of it. And you don't have to be afraid of anything. Because the good and the bad in history, in the past, in the present, in the future, it's all yours. It's all here for you to grow you up 
and to prepare you to step into eternity complete in Jesus Christ. You may be going through difficult things and you're tempted to say, God, why is this happening to me? And God's answer is, because I love you and I'm working things together in such a way that you will eventually, if not immediately, be able to look back upon all of this and thank me because I do all things well. All of these men are on the same team and they are all serving God by serving you with their various gifts. And Ephesians 1.10 says that the dispensation is the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And that brings us back to the last phrase in verse 22. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. It's all gonna get wrapped up with a nice big bow and Jesus is gonna hand it to the Father and say, it's done. We did it. We did it. And on into eternity, <laughs> everything that's going on in this world, it's all working together for the good of those who love God, who were called according to his purpose, which is to be conformed to the image of his son. And at the end, God is going to wrap it all up with a nice big bow and hand it to the Father. All of this is for you, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So, Christ is the only one qualified to judge us, and he will do so. And so we come to our key text. Everything else was context for this. And Paul writes, let no man, let a man so consider us, speaking of Cephas and Paul and Apollos, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, the things that God has now revealed. We are stewards of these things. And, and it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. And so Paul and Cephas and Apollos are all going to be judged eventually on the issue of how faithfully they handled their stewardship. But then Paul turns to the Corinthians, he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. You can judge my motives. You can question my competence. You can critique my uh, speaking ability, right? And they were doing that. Says, or even by a human court. You can organize a court and have a bunch of people all judging me at the same time. But he says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Do I know my motives? Do I really know my, mo my own motives? He says, for I know nothing against myself. He says, I'm not aware of anything that I needed to repent of. But then he says, yet I am not justified by this. The fact that I can't think of anything that I've done wrong doesn't mean I haven't done anything wrong. 
For I know nothing of myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, all of us, listen, judge nothing before the time. You cannot possibly have enough access to enough information to make any kind of a valid judgment, any more than that doctor in the Middle Ages can make a valid diagnosis and prescription. You have no idea what's really going on in the lives of the people around you and even in your own life. You are not competent to judge. So don't. Don't judge anything before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one will be condemned by God. Is that what it says? But you know, that's the way we think about it. We read this passage and we think, oh man, I have no idea what's in my heart. And I just know when I stand before God, he is just going to rip me apart and say, you creepy, criminal, unholy, what in the world? Man, I'm glad my grace is big and strong because you need it so bad. No, that's not what it says. And this is startling to us. This is the gospel that we forget. We have the righteousness of Christ. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit. And our spirit knows the deep things about us that we cannot access consciously. But God sees them all clearly. And that is why, dear brother or sister in Christ, you beat yourself up with condemnation. Satan accuses you of being unworthy. And you are unworthy. But God has redeemed you. He has washed you. He has filled you with his spirit. When you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to praise you. Now, some are going to get more praise than others. That's true. But it's not going to be a matter of this guy gets condemned and this guy gets praised. We all are going to receive commendation from God. And there are things in your heart and life right now that are so pleasing to God and you're not even aware of them. Think about that. You think this is going to be a day of embarrassment? It's going to be a day of surprise at how much was going on in your life that you didn't even know. All of our most secret heart attitudes will be brought to light and rewarded. rewarded by Christ. It will not be a day of punishment. It will not be a day of punishment. This is called the judgment seat of Christ. The word in the Greek is the, the bima. Romans 14.10, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad, we will all stand before God, before Christ at the judgment seat. Now, the bima was the raised platform where awards were handed out to winning athletes. <laughs> you don't get up on that stage to get spit on or, or, or criticized. Now, <laughs> you don't realize how pleasing to God you are. Now, I know this is hard for us because we still have this idea that, yeah, but I know stuff about me that God is not pleased with. But God is pleased that you care. <laughs> he is pleased that you want to change. He is pleased that you do not want to just sit back and, 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 and coast. That you want to get victory in that area of your life where you are falling short of the glory of God. God is so pleased with your desire to please him. And he is going to praise you for that on the bima, the judgment seat, at the judgment seat of Christ. We will all be rewarded, not punished. Some will receive greater rewards than others, but all will receive praise from God for issues of the heart that we are not now able to be aware of. Now this raises a question, how can God give out rewards without causing envy among people in heaven? You know, how, is it just because we're sinless and we won't even be tempted to be jealous of the, of the, of the guy that's got uh, more than we do? Well, here's what it says again, 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now, let's imagine for a moment that this is where God is doling out his rewards. <laughs> Do you think he's going to run out of anything here? Okay. Got plenty. Plenty coming over the wall, over the falls. Now, here comes... Here comes Greg, and, and I'm a thimble. Now, I made it large just so you could see it, but, but actually, um, it's more like that, okay? Now, when I, when I go into this waterfall, how full am I gonna come out on the other side? Anybody gonna guess? Full. I will have all I can handle, okay? Now, I gotta decide, should I do this? Okay, here, here comes Terry. Now, Terry is a 50-gallon drum. He's gonna get a lot more than I do, and I can't be envious because I couldn't hold what he's got, right? So I just have to say, boy, Terry, you got a lot. 
I got, I got all I could take, but you, you got all you could take too. Now, now here comes Brian. <laughs> and uh, Brian is an oil taker. <laughs> and Brian passes through the waterfall of God's rewards, and he comes out full of the brim. And Terry and I are standing over here going, wow, that's amazing. Brian's an oil tanker. But we wouldn't know what to do with what he's got, right? We're full. In fact, this is just a little oil tanker. We, we actually, Brian's a really big oil tanker. <laughs> okay, we're done with that. But I do believe that, that there will be no basis for envy in heaven. We will receive all that we can handle, and we will be so glad. And we'll know that we don't deserve to be there. It is the righteousness of Christ in us that is being honored and rewarded by God. But we get to enjoy the benefits of his love and his blessing. So all of our most secret heart attitudes are going to be brought to light, and we will be rewarded, not punished on that day. And all that we have, and we close with this, all that we have is a gift of God's grace. So we have no basis for boasting. Paul wraps things up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos. And you re see, because of what he's saying right here, we know he never stopped thinking about division. He's still addressing the issue of division within the church. It says, we've transferred these things to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn not to think beyond what is written. No, he's talking about what he's writing right now. Okay. What I'm writing to you right now, don't think beyond any, anything beyond what I'm saying here, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another. Notice they're not being puffed up in themselves. They're being puffed up on behalf of one another. And that's creating the division. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? All of these wonderful things that you admire in these men is a gift of God's grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so there's no basis for boasting. Paul can't boast. Apollos can't boast. You and I cannot boast because all that we have has been a gift from God. It's not of us, and therefore we can rest in that reality. Disunity is the sad evidence that we need to become more spiritual. When we walk in the Spirit with the mind of Christ, when we suddenly realize that uh, medicine is not what we thought it was, that there are germs, that there are antibiotics, that there are all these other things, wonderful things, that allow a doctor to truly be helpful. When we are no longer carnal, we have the mind of Christ. And we can be thankful for everything. Because it really is all for us. And we are for Christ, and Christ is for God the Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness in our lives.
And I ask that you would take this extended message and use it, Lord, to do a deep and thorough work in our hearts. May we individually cease to be carnal. And may we corporately cease to be carnal. May we walk in the Spirit with the mind of Christ for the glory of God. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.